the core essence equation for portfolio management is to have a positive mathematical expectation. You know, how much you make you when you win versus how much you lose when you lose. Okay, so that's the probability of winning, how often you win, times your how much you win when you win, and then it's the probability of losing times how much you lose when you lose, and you minus those things out and you come up with mathematical expectation, we want that to be positive. So it's not about trying to make all the trades a winner, it's about having the average win be much greater than the average loss, and that is a symmetry. I was recently asked to write an article about my experience talking to many of the world's top traders on my podcast. It was a bit of a challenge because they all come at their craft in slightly different ways. So I wondered if it was possible to define some things that they have in common. And here are some of my observations. They all come from very different backgrounds, which to me suggests that there is no such thing as the right pedigree. They're all human beings, like the rest of us, and have for the most part had struggles and challenges in their lives which they have had to overcome. They clearly love what they do and can't see themselves doing any other job. They're incredibly focused on their craft and pay little attention to what other people do. They are highly diligent and disciplined in their application of their work. They almost without exception mentions risk management as the most important part of what they do instead of focusing on how much return they can generate. They pay little or no attention to the financial news but rather on the price of the markets which they all feel are less noisy. They all feel the emotion of drawdowns even after many years of trading and have develop different ways of dealing with these emotions in order to stay disciplined and not stray off course by making rash decisions. They all accept that no strategy will work all the time and just because a strategy or a market have lost money for a short or long period does not mean that it should be abandoned as long as the environment in which it operates can explain the poor performance. And they all have a hidden talent or a fun factor about themselves which very few people around them know about. Of course, that is, until they share it on the podcast. When you hear today's episode, I hope you will agree that some of these observations really are true. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged. The place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, where my goal is to give you the clarity, the confidence, and the courage you need to invest like or invest with one of the top traders in the world. It is the stories you never get to hear set out as the most honest and transparent account that I can make of what goes on inside the minds of some of the best investors in the world. Today you're listening to episode 71. If this is your first episode, you might want to go back and listen to all the earlier conversations. But before we go any further, 
Let's find out who's on today's show. This is Mike Shell of Shell Capital Management, and you're listening to Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks for doing that, Mike. And by the way, if you want to read a full transcript of today's episode, just visit the toptradersunplugged.com website, where you will find lots of details about today's guest. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Mike, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Great. Now, Mike, you are a little bit different uh, to the guests that I usually have on the podcast in, in a number of ways. And, and here are some of my uh, early observations. Uh, firstly, you typically manage a large part of your client's assets, while most hedge funds or CTAs only get a small part of the assets uh, as a single uh, you know, manager or from a single investor. You also use ETFs as your main investment universe. And you're not registered as a CTA, but rather you're a registered investment advisor. And then you charge, as far as I can tell, a, a wrap fee, which is different from the normal. So all of those things to me are very uh, intriguing and interesting. But of course, when it comes to the strategy you employ, there are so many commonalities to the CTA world, which makes it a, a very interesting conversation, I think. Um, so... Another way for the listeners to learn about how to use alternative ways to implement a robust and rule-based investment strategy. But before we go into all those details, I wanted to ask you uh, what may seem a, as a simple question, but I think still it's uh, something that I find many people have different answers to. So I'd like to go ahead and just ask you that initially. And that is something like this. If you meet someone for the first time, say at a social event, who does not know you or what you do, how do you explain what you do in a very sort of short way? Well, I'm an, I'm an investment manager and I apply tactical trend systems to global markets. So our, and our objective is, is asymmetry. So my asymmetry program is designed to manage risk and compound capital positively over various market conditions and over a full market cycles of bull and bear markets. And, and so in other words, where, where focus is to, to manage risk and, and, but also compound, you know, positive capital. And, uh, and so asymmetry is really all about the risk and reward, you know, how much downside risk can they handle versus how much total return. And so in, and in order to achieve that, you know, we're, we're doing it across, you know, global markets using, uh, primarily exchange traded securities, and uh, and we do it in a managed account structure. Sure, great stuff. Now, that was just very quick uh, introduction to uh, to that. I what I really want to do now, Mike, is I want to go back and I want you to tell us your story because my very strong belief is that you don't really understand the numbers from a manager unless you understand the story. So please go back as far as you want and and tell me. You know, from the time you almost, you know, grew up as a young man to to where we are today, how did that all come about? Well, I grew up in uh, uh, primarily in East Tennessee. Um, we, my my stepdad was was an engineer, so we moved around uh, a little bit when I was younger. But then I ended up mostly living with my grandparents in East Tennessee on a on a uh, a large piece of land and. Uh, and so I, when I was in high school, uh, out of high school, I joined the Marine Corps. I wasn't ready to go to college. And so I joined the Marine Corps. My, my tour was ended early from injury. 
Uh, I got out of the Marine Corps, uh, very quickly became a police officer uh, at the Sheriff's Department where I was and uh, uh, began college, uh, working full-time as an officer and, and went through college and got a, a business administration bachelor degree and with a focus in accounting and finance. From there, I, was, I thought I was going to be a federal agent because uh, I was interested in law enforcement as mm -hmm. I was working in law enforcement. Sure. But from there, I actually, uh, I actually you know, became very interested in trading because actually the trading part came a little sooner than that. I actually picked up, uh, had, had read uh, actually how to make money in stocks, Bill O'Neill's first book back in the early 90s. And that, that got me interested in trading. And so eventually, a few years later, I started being more focused on trading. Um, and, and that's, and that's, you know, kind of how it all started. The first thing I did was I, you know, I wanted to get into the industry. So I was joined brokerage firms and I worked for a couple of different brokerage firms. I realized that the brokerage firm route wasn't the way for me because I wanted to manage money and be an actual portfolio manager. And, uh, so I later on, uh, uh started uh, in 2004, I started shell capital management and uh, shell capital management's registered as an investment advisor. And due to the nature of me working with direct investors like uh, business owners and physicians and engineers, uh, I, I, did, I didn't think that a fund structure was such the way for me to go. It seemed to me that, you know, doing it as an investment manager, running separately managed accounts on a brokerage platform was the better way to go. So that's how I did it. So that's kind of how I got started. I mean... Obviously, that covers a lot of years in a very short uh, space of time. So I want to just go back a little bit because, again, from from being in the Marines, getting injured, uh, coming to the police force, and then suddenly starting to pick up trading, where did the initial, I don't know whether the word is exposure or interest in financial markets, where where did that come from? Well, it was, uh, I think, you know, in the, in the early, sometime in the early 90s, I had gotten a hold of uh, the book, How to Make Money in Stocks by right. William Hill. And that is a very quantitative, uh, you know, system methodology. It's rules-based, but it is also discretionary. And the charting part of it uh, was what really intrigued me, too. So you screen for stocks and then you use charts to determine the trend and you use relative strength to determine the strength of the trend. And so that, that actually... Uh, you know, I, I went. You know, I took that a lot further, uh, mm -hmm. dramatically further now. Uh, but that, the the charting part of it, and the trend part, and the relative strength part, was the parts that I really started doing my own proprietary research on, and uh, and also risk management, uh, much you know more sophisticated ways of managing downside risk, and so that was really the original thing, and that's where it all started for me. And then from there, I'll tell you, I've read, you know, uh, over 500 books. I think it's well over that now based on Amazon, you know, the last time I counted. Uh, you know, uh, I've read over 500 books on trading and math and investor psychology. And, um, and you know, and, and that's where the – over time, I developed my strategy. You know, the, the Jack Schwager, Market Wizard books was incredible uh, influences for me. You know, Ed Sakota. Uh, Richard Dennis, the the Turtle Story, uh, the you know, Michael Covell's trend following books obviously were were huge, and the, all the technical analysis stuff, and all of those things over over the last twenty years, because because it really probably started around ninety four, mm -hmm. so it's been right at now twenty years, 
those things over the first 10 years influenced my beliefs and I developed my beliefs. I tested my beliefs after about 10 years, starting around 2001 to 2003. I started systems trading where I started testing my beliefs, testing the discretionary methods that I was previously using and, and started, you know, developing those things into algorithms and models and systems. And, and now I, now I have a complete system that encompasses all of the parts that I think I need to, all the questions I need to answer every day. And, and so that's kind of how it all got to where it is. Sure. I mean, you also mentioned, uh, of course, that your first exposure to the financial industry was in the brokerage world. And um, I'm just a little bit curious about, you know, what were your experience within that uh, that really propelled you to to realize that, that that wasn't for you? You wanted to do something uh, different. What was it inside the brokerage world that you saw that just didn't make sense? Well, as I spent several years, you know, as a as a broker, as a stock broker and an options broker, I was a registered principal and registered options principal for a firm, and so I was mainly trading stocks and and, and high relative strength stocks and also options back then. Uh, you know, it's it's you know there you're having to a, a broker is is selling securities, so you're you're recommending that they buy or sell a stock, and so you got the the other the person, the investor, the asset owner. Is ultimately making a decision. You know, you're you're telling them what you think they should do, but they ultimately have to be able to do it. So it doesn't matter how good your edge is of, of entry, exit, and size, and how well you manage risk. If that other person's not unable to do that, then you can't really take that. You know, take your strategy, even if you do have an edge, and actually implement it with people who then have to be able to. They have to have your edge too. You see, or else they're not gonna they're not gonna make it. They're not gonna allow you to make the decision. Oh. And so. Um, and so now you can get you can have discretion as a broker, you know, and as I did uh, for years back then. But the problem there still is that you're, you know, ultimately a broker is a broker. If you're at a, a Merrill Lynch or a Wells Fargo or a Raymond James or wherever, you know, those are brokerage firms. They mean well, but they're there to sell investments. And in order to be a true money manager, a person has to form an investment management company. And they have to have documentation that says what they do, you know. So we have documentation like our form ADV that describes the strategy, and it starts. To, and then you're starting to really define the strategy, and and your whole firm, our whole firm is is managing one investment program. So Shell Capital Management manages the Asymmetry Global Tactical Managed Account. It's one one program, and that's all we do. We don't do anything else, and then. Um, and so the brokerage, the brokerage experience, the, the challenge was trying to get other people to make decisions with an edge. And, and so that's very, very difficult to do. And then also doing it with an environment that's not designed for that. I mean, the, the brokerage, I would go to, bro, you know, go to a brokerage meeting and the brokerage firms are calling themselves, you know, the sales organization, you know. And here I'm sitting here thinking, you know, this is, it's really not who I am and what I want to do. You know, I'm not, I'm not in a sales organization. I want to. I want to be a money manager, a portfolio manager. I want to make trading decisions for a living, and that's all I do today. And that's all I've been doing for ten years. And so that just wasn't a fit for me. And I, but but you know, you have to start somewhere. Sure. I mean, I think I mean even the greatest, some of the greatest traders in the world started in that the very same way. Uh, I, I know you know several that you know of you know started at some of the the big you know investment you know the brokerage houses, investment banks, uh, but. But ultimately, you know, to really do what you really want to do, you have to get out there and create your own firm, become a, you know, become a business owner and, and make it all happen. 
uh, you know, it's it's like a, an employee is a person who operates the systems that 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 somebody else uh, that somebody else creates. A a self-employed person is a person who cr- believes they can create their own systems, so they go out and do that. And then, but then they also operate the system. So if a self-employed person, they may create their own systems, but they operate their systems. And this could be a McDonald's franchise, okay? It could be a manufacturing company. A business owner is a person who owns a business who may hire people to run the business and don't have quite so much to do with the actual operation. And then the investor is, is actually the person who like invests with me and they allow me, they hire me to manage their money for them. And I do the trading and they go out and, you know, sell away on their yacht or play golf or whatever it is they enjoy doing. Uh, and so, you know, it's kind of that, that's sort of the four different levels of, fun, of freedom, I think. Uh, when you're an employee of an investment bank or or a brokerage firm, that's that's what you are, and you're and, and ultimately you may have your own strategy. I did. I had my own strategy then, but I couldn't really implement it in the way because I couldn't implement it in the way that I wanted to. Because you see, when when you ha- even if you are even if they give you discretion and you are part of the investment advisor division of that firm, you hand them a a, a form ADV you know filed with the SEC that document it says who who you are as a company. Well, it's got everybody else's name on it, but yours. You know, it's got all the other people. It don't have your name on it. You didn't write it. So you have to have if you're going to have a strategy, you've got to have your own strategy, and that requires you to start your own firm. And I and I'll, and let me mention one more thing. I do today something I've we started uh, a little over two years ago is we do also run a fund. I don't talk about it as much, you know, publicly, but we did start a management company to manage a fund. We're we're you know doing it on a limited basis at this point. Uh, the fund is just a more advanced version of what I'm doing, where I'm using options and and a much more dialed up, faster moving system. Uh, but but you know there again the a fund structure is is another way of doing it, but it's a pooled account. And to me, the the reason that you go from the investment, so I can do what I do in a managed account program as a registered investment advisor, and I can manage these accounts across. We 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 we're available at several places. Our we our main custodians that we use are Folio Institutional, Trust Company of America, and then and then we have the programs available also through Placemark Investments and places you know brokers like Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, Pershing, and Interactive Brokers. So I could manage the I could manage this managed account program across all these different platforms. I could buy and sell. That's all I do is we buy and sell. We don't custody. All I do is buy and sell in these accounts across all these different platforms, and and that is a hundred percent of my focus. And as a firm, that's all we focus on. And and uh, and and because of the way that I do the managed account program, which is the main thing that we do, you know, and have been doing for ten years. Uh, because of the way I'm trading mainly ETFs or you know, you know securities, you know, rather than say options or derivatives or futures, is that I could very easily do that in a managed account, and and I could do that in a Schwab account or a Folio institutional account, or you know I could do that in a, somebody's individual account because I you know it's possible to do it, and so when it's possible to do it, you may as well do it that way. That way they get transparency, they get control, and they get liquidity. Sure. So. John, absolutely. I had one question before we jump into to that because I can I can sense where we're already heading, uh, which is exciting. But um, just to, just out of curiosity, I mean, being in the Marine Corps and then being in the police force and then working for a large organization, in a sense, you you are part of a of a group, so to speak. I was just curious, what gave you the courage 
to go and become an entrepreneur because that that is a very different environment let alone the fact that you wanted to be able to implement your own strategy that's one thing but you also have to have you know a certain amount of courage to say okay i'm not going to take a monthly paycheck anymore i'm not going to be part of this group i'm going to do this on my own was there anything in particular that 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 is a that is a it's an excellent question um and, and an interesting thing because I, I've always been an independent thinker. You know, I think I was that way as a, as a kid. Um, I think back to my friends when I was young and my cousins. You know, I've always kind of been a very independent thinker. Um, and so I am the I am probably the epitome of an independent thinker. I kind of chart my own way, do my own thing, and you know, within the rules that I'm given. Uh, not that I break the rules, I just mean that I, I come up with my own ideas, my own way of doing things. Now the irony is, is that I was, you know, you know, you know, I spent, you know, a few years as a Marine and as a as a law enforcement officer, where there you're, you know, you're taught discipline and to follow orders and to to do those things, and so that did provide me with an an, an unusual level of discipline uh, that you learn and precision, you know the. The military and in law enforcement, you know, they're very precise. They're they're very, they very much follow rules. You see, uh, but they're also bureaucracies. And I can assure you that my experience in a law enforcement agency for you know four or five years certainly taught me that that wasn't what I was going to do in my career because of the politics involved and all those things. I have a lot of respect for the the, the organizations, but but it's not for me as far as the politics and how it all works. Uh, I. I guess for me, uh, what what sprung me out of it was I, I just you know it just wasn't my fit. I, I, I became as I become older and older, I was becoming more and more an independent thinker, and I am self driven, I'm self motivated. So I, I've got this internal desire to do more with myself, and I've got an internal desire to create things and to create and operate things. So I create systems, and I create systems for everything. Everything and everything we do is is some sort of a system. And that's what that's my passion, and that's what I do. So I think what gave me, you know, obviously I, I was I had some bravery, I guess, you know, as a personality trait, or else I wouldn't have ever, you know, joined the Marines and uh, and and got into law enforcement, uh, and 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 wouldn't have, you know, gone off and and went to a zero paycheck environment where you don't actually get paid, you know, just to be there. Uh, I took a chance, and and in fact. You know, my grandmother was one of the smartest people I ever knew in my life, and there's only one, there, and she told me a lot of really, really good advice that it took me years to figure out. But I can tell you, there was only one thing that she was ever wrong about. She told me in 1994, Mike, you're so you're you're you don't don't overdo this. You know, you don't get burnt out. And I tell you, I've been like this for 20 years, and I'm not going got, got burnt out not a single day. This is how I am all the time. I, you know, I, I love what I'm doing, and and I found my passion. And I could have very easily just went and worked, you know, at a factory and made widgets for the rest of my life. But I chose to to do what I'm doing, and and I'm going to keep doing it, you know, till the day I die. And I tell people now, I say, you know, I'm as retired today as I ever will be because this is what I'm going to do until the day till I'm gone. I mean, as long as I'm here, as long as I can see and do, as long as I can comprehend the world, this is what I'm going to do until the day I'm out of here. And uh, and so I'm as retired today as I'm ever going to be. I'm not ever going to retire. And sure. so that's so it's that level of passion for it and drive and and you know and, and just you know and just making it happen. And also I'll tell you one thing. I mentioned uh, something about a Market Wizard's book earlier. You know the the one thing that I, you know Ed Sakota said that everybody always gets what they want in a market. And I'll say just I'll say this. 
I believe that everybody gets what they want, okay? And I think, and I believe that I'll go so far as to say that everybody always gets what they want. Now, you can say, well, you know, I've got cancer. I don't want cancer. Of course you don't. You, I, I didn't say you wanted cancer. I said everybody gets what they want. And what I believe that means for me is that I believe that we get what we want because we decide what we get. And I think that if you really want something, you'll get it. And in my life, in the last 44 years, I have seen people People get what they want, and even if they claim that they don't have what they want, it's because of what they're doing every day is why they're not getting it. And I can assure you that I am getting exactly what I want, good and bad. You know, I make mistakes and I do things that, you know, don't have great outcomes, but I decided those things, you know. And I think that that level of personal responsibility, that level of commitment and drive is the key. And it's not just me. And, you know, that's I see it in all the other people. There's a few other people that I know that are really good at, at doing the kind of things I do. And I see the same level of passion and commitment and you know they're they're fully committed we're fully committed to what we do and and my whole life revolves around it you know uh, my wife and I we don't have kids so our whole life revolves around what we're doing here so it, it's you know that and and I started that around when I when I was around 24 years old is when it all really got started and and it's been that way ever since now and I, clearly the passion is it comes through uh, loud and clear and, and i think you're absolutely right that that is very important but i just wanted to ask one thing before we get into the more sort of uh, um, serious stuff and that is if you're not working one day or if you've got time to spare what do you like to do which is not related to the business well that's that's a good question um and you know, and let me mention before that, you know, well, the things I was just saying is related to the human element, you know, so there is a human element to to the whole process. There are personality traits, I think, that that help in doing this, because I just mentioned them. I said it's drive and passion, and those are all things. Well, the other side of the human element, I guess we could say is, is to answer your question is, you know, we, see, the thing is, um, my whole lifestyle revolves around around you know tr the process of trading but it, but the funny thing is is that the way that we do it you know the truth is we don't get up and I don't get up and go to an office every day anymore and I did for years I wasted a lot of time getting up and getting ready and going to an office okay now now I, I primarily am, am doing what I do from uh, to, you know my home office here in, in in Tampa Florida or my home in you know Knoxville Tennessee and and you know what that I get up, I wake up at about six o'clock in the morning. I go walk straight into my home office. I turn on my machine, you know, get my machines running and I start immediately. And that, and, and I, I run that until I'm, I'm in a zone in a very deep zone for until about 11 o'clock. So from six to 11, I'm drinking coffee and doing what I do. And then after about 11 o'clock, I go and, and have lunch and do other things, you know, and, and probably go out and sit by the pool, you know, when I'm in sunny Florida. And and literally sometimes, by the way, I take my laptop and I'm sitting out there with my little shit zoo uh, doing doing my, my, my trading activities out there. You see, the funny thing is, is that the... You know, the the process is not going and sitting in an office. For me, it's it's built into our life, and I'm not afraid to say that because that's just how we roll here. And and it's and it's it's uh, so you know I, I may go I may go jump in the pool at noon, you know, and and go for a swim. I'm and one big thing I do is we'll, I walk every day a lot. Uh, Christy and I will go for long walks with our dog, and 
we'll go walk for three three out you know uh, we'll go walk for three miles and come back and I may get you know I may get in the pool and then I may turn around and then and then about around two o'clock then I go revisit what's going on in the world I look at my positions and look at all the things that's going on and run systems again and the things that we do for fun though is the you know the the funny thing is the fun is built into the day. That's just how the, this is. That's how we do it. We've been doing that way for the last, you know, five or six years. And we went from, you know, going to an office and sitting in an office environment to just my. I, I need to be in a certain mental state to do what I do. And and my best mental state is is a lot of times sitting with shorts and a t-shirt outside by the pool, or maybe even on. You know, we don't go to the beach and do it that much, but you know, in a very relaxed environment, so I can really be in the zone, really focus on what I'm doing. And then for fun, well, you know. Friday night, we're, we're doing a fire pit Friday. We've got a bunch of friends and neighbors coming over. We're going to have a fire out in the front, you know, in the driveway, have 20 people. We're going to grill fillets. I've got a, 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 a boat, a, a motor yacht down in St. Pete Beach uh, on the weekends, you know, to get away. We go down there and we, you know, we hang out on the boat and take the boat out onto the ocean and drop an anchor down, you know, off an island somewhere and swim around with stingrays and jellyfish, you know. We uh, we do lots of things like that. We went to the you know Tennessee uh, played in a bowl game last weekend, and we were in Jacksonville for the whole weekend. So we we do you know we we play hard and we and we 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 play hard, but we work hard. But but really, the funny thing is though is that in the middle of all this, twenty four seven, when our investors email us at eleven o'clock last night, you know we we probably replied back. You know we I mean it's just incorporated. Right. And so we we've done things differently that way, and that our whole lifestyle is is revolved around it's all in, it's all integrated. There is no separation. There is no work. I've not worked in since I've been doing this. Oh. Uh, there is you know it's, there is no separation. There's no nine to five job that you come home to grab a six pack and go you know and go uh, do you know go watch TV or play with the kids. For us, it, this is just how we do things all the time, and then we build, you know, lots of fun and exciting, you know, lifestyle things into it. Sure. I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing things differently. That's part of, of uh, what attracts certain people to, to uh, you know, certain managers. I do want to turn the attention now to. Uh, to the more uh, business-oriented stuff. Now, we as human beings, I think it's fair to say that we all have a bias towards symmetry in our lives. I mean, if we decorate our houses, we want the pictures on the wall to be placed symmetrical to each other. But why is symmetry the last thing you want when it comes to investing? Well, that's an outstanding question. So my, my program is called asymmetry, uh, you know, which is a word that I've actually trademarked uh, several years ago. And, and so our, our managed account is called, our, our actual portfolio is called Asymmetry Global Tactical. Our managed account program, the RAP program is called Asymmetry Investment Program. Uh, our website is Asymmetry Managed Accounts. And my, the fund that I manage privately is Asymmetry Fund Management and the Asymmetry Global Tactical Fund LP. So everything revolves around asymmetry. We, we've even considered changing the name to asymmetry. So asymmetry is about imbalance. It's about not equal. Okay. It's about one thing, you know, it's about more of one, less of the other. Okay. So when we, if, if you understand the, the, the core essence equation for portfolio management is, is, a, is a, to have a positive mathematical expectation. 
So I'm going to start with the begin. I'm going to start with the end, which is a positive mathematical expectation means that the, your average wins versus your your average, you know, so the percentage of wins of, you know, how much you make you when you win and versus how much you lose when you lose. Okay, so that's the probability of winning, how often you win, you know, that's a, that's how often, times your how much you win when you win, and then it's the probability of losing times how much you lose when you lose, and you minus those things out, and you come up with mathematical expectation. We want that to be positive. Sure. So it's not about trying to make all the trades a winner. It's about having the average average win be much greater than the average loss, and that is asymmetry. And so asymmetry is about imbalancing risk and reward on a trade basis. So it's you know more profits, less losses on a trade basis. And it's also about more, more, uh, more total return and, and less downside at the portfolio level. Investors want more, you know, as much return as they can get within a given amount of risk. And I'll tell you, we can, we can't control how much profit we make, but we can control how much risk we take. Sure. And that is that is the key, and that is the essence of it. Everybody else is trying to focus on trying to be right on all the trades and trying to make the trades winners. I'm focused on completely on the things that I know that I can control, and that is how much I'm risking and how much I've got at risk at any given time. And because I do control and manage my risk, then I'm, a lay, a la, I'm able to, to find potentially profitable price trends in world markets and in some markets that some people think are risky. You know, but what I'm doing is I'm, I'm mainly controlling my risk in order to create asymmetry. So the funny thing is, while if you notice the investment industry ha tends to say, like you said, they tend to say you want to balance your risk and reward. Well, that's completely wrong. If you balance your risk and reward or if you balance your profit and loss, now just visualize what that looks like. That's an oscillator. It's, it's, you have a period of winning, and then you have a period followed by losing. So, it, so you'll win for a while, and you'll lose for a while, and you'll win for a while, and you'll lose for a while when you, when you balance your risk and reward and when you balance your profit and loss. And that is called symmetry. Okay, Symmetry is balance. We don't want to balance our risk and reward. We don't want to balance our, our P&L. We don't want to balance our you know, total return versus our drawdown. We want to imbalance it. We want less of one, more of the other. And that is an objective, and, and that objective is built into everything I do, and that is, ironically, the positive mathematical expectation that most uh, CTAs understand. That is what it is. And so I call it asymmetry. They can call it expectation, but for me, it's asymmetry, and it is the essence of everything that I do. Sure. No, I like the fact that you've been able to sort of coin a phrase which really defines uh, you, know, you and, and, and what you do. Um, because I think that that's often very, very difficult to do. So, so my question is, when did you realize that that's actually in one word, what you wanted to do? Uh, it's that, that came about probably, it was actually, I guess, uh, I guess I learned, I just, I guess when I discovered, uh, expectation, mm -hmm. uh, would have been, uh, in the late nineties at some point. And it's probably a combination of learning about, uh, the turtle trading system, uh, expectation obviously is a core of that. Mm -hmm. And then, and then of course a little further, you know, uh, Van Tharp of course have, uh, wrote a lot about it, uh, in the late nineties. And so when I, it, you know, I understand math in a unique way. And 
I, I don't have a PhD in math. I have 14 PhDs, I say, because I've read five, six, seven hundred books. I mean, so uh, the funny thing is my PhD comes from uh, Covell, Schwager, Tharp, you know, so on and so forth, so, you know, Sakota, go down the line. I mean, I've got a PhD from this. My, the name of the school has got so many last names in it that I can't even write them all out, you see, because I, I, a PhD is a doctorate of philosophy. OK, I've definitely got a few of those. Uh but the thing is, one of the that concept for me in my mind came about, I guess, in the late nineties uh, when I, I guess, the word just kind of come into my head because it's all about imbalance. Mm. You know, the whole imbalance theme came in, and then I started using it. I realized, uh, I guess, a few back several years, a few years ago, four or five years ago, I guess, I realized that I started using it more and more mm-hmm. to define the asymmetry in a trade. So you know. You can talk about a portfolio at the trade level, which we don't do with the investors that much because that would be way too complicated. But the investors are more concerned about how much does, does my account go down when it goes down and how much does it go up when it goes up over a full market cycle. Not just the bull market in stock, say the stock market, but the, the entire, you know, look at the last 10 years. You know, you've seen my performance, what it looks like. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you, you need that asymmetry over bull and bear markets. You need over recessions and expansions. Uh, I, you know, you, you could, I can, I think about asymmetry at the, at the P and L level of, you know, I risk a dollar and I make it uh, $2 on average and, and I could only be right 50% of the time and I'm still going to make 50 cents. You know, that's expectation. Sure. If I flip a coin, you know, which has a 50% probability of winning and a 50% probability of losing, if I can skew that payoff, you know, it's all about the payoff, the asymmetrical payoff. If I can skew that to where I lose a dollar when I lose and maybe I make $2 when I win, then that's where asymmetry comes from, and that's, and that's expectation. And, and so that, that word has just you know, come into my mind years ago, uh, and, and, I, and I used it a lot in conversation, and then I decided you know, this is what we need to name what I do because it is my objective. So asymmetry is my objective, and asymmetrical returns is my objective because I'm trying to compound capital positively but do so within a certain amount of drawdown, a certain amount of risk tolerance that, that we're, we're willing to – we're not willing – I'm not willing to accept a drawdown more than about 20%. So, so I'm controlling my risk. I don't want to have my decline, uh, my peak to trough drawdown to be more than about 20% you know, with, within this managed account program. So that's my you – know, and, and I'd like the total return. I can't control that, you see. Sure. When, I, when I get into a trend, I can't make it go up. When I get into something, I can't make you know it, whether. And then, by the way, I also counter trend things. See, I don't just do trend following. You know, I don't. I, I buy trend mostly trend things that are going up. When when I go outside and I throw a ball into the air, if I want it to go really far and go really high, I'm going to throw it as fast as I can. If I could throw that ball 90 miles an hour, it, the 90 miles an hour is going to be clocked coming out of my hand, and it's going to it's going to be faster early, and then it's going to slow down, and eventually it's going to rate of change, the velocity, momentum, the relative strength is going to slow down. It's going to start to arc, and when it, when that when that velocity starts to slow down, it starts to arc, and that's when it starts to come back down again. That's what a trend kind of looks like. Even in prices, the difference is I, I, I normally can't go out, and throw the ball, have it arc down, and then and, and make a low, and then turn around and go up again. I, I'm not able to do that. I'm not that good at throwing a ball. But but you see, that is the essence of a trend: is that trends tend to start off really fast, really strong out of the gate, and that's what we want to buy. Is we want to buy strong trends out of the gate. They tend to slow down toward the end. And now now the other thing that happens though is is counter trends, which sometimes. Uh, 
the trend is probably created by underreaction to information is that people, they, we may all get the same re- information, but we don't catch it. We don't see it at the same time. And so that, so as people build on to a trend and they start to learn that information, that trend starts to continue and it lasts longer. There's another thing that occurs too, though, that's explained by behavioral finance. And that is that, that trends can also go too far. You know, they can overreact and, and, and we never really, the overreaction part is is uh, is is the is a is a tricky subject because if you bet against the trend, you have high, you know you can lose you, you can lose a lot more money betting against the trend than you can betting with a trend. So the overreaction part, you know, is a little more tricky to figure out when something may have moved too far too fast. But that's a part of it too. But asymmetry is really ultimately all about uh, having you know uh, more profits and, and less losses, and and that's. That is, to me, the essence of portfolio management, um, and it is the essence of all that I do and everything. I think about it every day. Uh, my, my house is even asymmetrical. It's larger on one side than it is the other. <laughs> so I'm, so not, I'm, not really, I'm not even going to guess what your boat is named, but um, I, I have a feeling it might be close to asymmetry. Well, actually, it's, uh, you know, that, that would be a good idea, but uh, it's... Uh, it's actually ad, ad, adventure capital because uh, you know, and it actually uses my shell capital logo, but it actually puts the word adventure in there because it's all about adventure. I think you know, I did a study years ago on happiness and what causes happiness and what what allows us to stay happy. And the irony is, a change and uncertainty, the very thing a lot of people fear, is what actually leads to happiness. And 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 happiness is all about you know, if you want to stay happy, you know, you need new experiences in your life, you need adventures. You need some change because because uh, there's a term that that I say a lot, and and, and my wife, uh, you know, would, you know, gets tired of hearing. I think as I say it almost every day, hedonic adaptation. So hedonic adaptation means that we get used to things, no matter what it is. You can go buy the best Ferrari in the world and get out and drive around, or the best best yacht in the world. You will get used to it, and you will get to where it's it's not quite as valuable to you anymore. And so what you want to do is you want to try to avoid being get, getting too used to those things by not maybe not doing it too much. And uh, and so the irony is, uh, you know, you uh, the nice thing about a boat is that you can go out and, and have an adventure on the boat and go to new places and explore new areas. And and that's that's what's really neat about boating. And of course, you can do the same on motorcycles or a convertible car and you can fly around the world. But but that's uh, I actually named it Adventure Capital. And uh uh, ha- haven't yet put the word asymmetry into it, but most everything else we have, uh, you know, the boat is certainly asymmetrical. It's larger in the back than it is in the front. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Now, you mentioned one other word that I think we just want to touch upon as well, and that is the fact that most people, most human beings, they want, uh, you know, as much certainty in life that they can get. Um, not many people, you know, thrive in, in, in an uncertain environment. But you obviously have a strong belief that we need to embrace the uncertainty. Talk to me about this concept and, and how, do we, how do we learn to become better at accepting uncertainty? Well, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, so, so uncertainty, you know, we're, you know, the fact of the matter is we're not certain about anything. Okay, I mean, we we don't know the future. We don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, I don't know. We don't know what's going to happen next in a trade. Nobody does. 
We don't know how, what's going to happen next about anything. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that we don't even know for sure yet that we're if we're going to die. Now think about it, because we're not dead yet, and so they may cure death before we die. You see that we we don't know for sure that we're going to. You know, you're not even certain about that. You couldn't bet your life on it, but you know, we don't know for sure that we're going to die. You you don't even know for sure. You don't have to pay taxes. They say death and taxes are the only certainties. So that's why I'm using these as an example. You don't have to pay taxes. The alternative is to go to prison. Okay, so so there's there's we're really not certain about anything or not very many things. Now, if I take an axe and I hit my hand with it, you know, I'm probably pretty certain it's going to hurt and it's probably going to do some damage to my hand. But I don't know. Maybe it don't. But I'm not going to try it. But but we just don't know the future. And 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 so here's the funny thing: the way you deal with uncertainty. People people worry about things, and, and especially traders in the markets. This is one of the most common things, I believe, is that people worry about things. And worry is when you sit around and ruminate and, and, and are all concerned and fearing things that haven't even happened. So you sit around and you worry about these things, worry about what the market's going to do next, and, and, and it hasn't even happened. Well, if you do that enough, guess what happens? If you do that enough, then you're going to experience that internally, even if it doesn't happen. Okay. So people who worry a lot, they tend to experience those feelings and they experience bad things, even if they don't even happen. The way you deal with uncertainty is you, 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 I wrote an article on asymmetry observations uh, just two weeks ago before the holidays. Uh, we were getting ready to go to lots of holiday parties and events and, and, and we were hearing about all these flu going around and, and, you know, and it's, you know, it was a very unpleasant stories. We're hearing about all these, you know, these viruses that people were getting and people were sick. And I'm thinking, oh man, we're going to go to these parties. And we're going to catch it. And, uh, by the way, I didn't, but Christy actually did catch, catch a little bit of one, but, but I wrote this article about it. And, and, and what I said in there, it's, a, I think it's a pretty compelling piece because, you know, we, we know that we're going to these parties and going to be around people who may have, you know, these viruses may be around in the air. But, you know, and when we know what the risk is, we've defined the risk, we understand it. OK, and it kind of almost makes you want to say, hey, has anybody there had the flu lately? You know, <laughs> but but, you know, at the end of the day, man, we you've got to live life. And, and, and like I said earlier, hedonic adaptation, you need new experiences. At the end of the day, you 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 predefine your risk, okay? You define you you understand what the risk is. You predefine that risk, and then you live with it. You let it go. So it's like when I when I buy something at fifty, and I say, okay, my system says I'm going to get out at forty five because so I buy it at fifty, and if it goes down to forty five, that means that it's no longer working. Okay, it's no longer going in the trend I want it to go in. I'm going to get out. When I do that, I completely and utterly. Uh, have have let that five dollar uh, risk go. Okay, now most people buy at fifty, and they, a lot of people would let it go to zero. I when when I do define that risk, I let that I let it go, and 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 I and I assume as though in my mind I've already lost the money. Okay, I am that I I am at that level of accepting the risk that I just took. Sure. And and once I do that. I let it go and I let it rip and I let it all unfold as it does. And once that trade gets underway and it goes from, say, 50, 55, 60, 65, I've got an exit system that also follows that trade as it goes through there. Well, that same concept we have to apply in life, too. We have to understand what our risk is in a situation, no matter what it may be. You know, a friend of mine was just talking about, you know, their son just turned 16. He's driving for the first time. You know, should he have passengers in the car or not and all this well, you, you understand, you, you think deeply about your situation, you think about the risk of it, 
and the uncertainties because because it's always going to be uncertain because we just don't know the future. We don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know the outcome in advance. And so you understand what the risk is, and then you have to accept it, and you let it go. You define what you're, you determine how much risk you're going to take in that situation. We're going to go to our parties, and we're going to enjoy friends. We're going to enjoy family. We're not going to avoid that and miss out on life just because we're afraid we may have to, you know, take uh, a Tamiflu for five days. You see, we're going to we're going to go ahead and do what we do. And sure enough, you know, she got a little bit sick and had to take medication, but we got she got past it. And now we're all good and. You know, and so I think it's it's we deal with that every single day in life. But if you if you're too afraid to take risk, then you need to focus on how can you manage and control that risk and determine how much you're willing to take. Define that, you know, put it down and control it, and then let it rip and just let it all unfold. Because I can tell you this: whether it's whether it's a trade or whether it's in life, if you allow that position to just let it all unfold, man, just. It's like watching a movie. I, I, I'm, I, you know, we have a home theater and we love watching movies. We watch a movie almost every night, and uh, before we go to bed, that's when the last, That's how I get my mind off of everything before, so I can go to sleep. And and I'll sit here with a glass of red wine and watch my movie for two hours. And you know, I hate it when somebody tells me the outcome of the movie. I don't want to know the outcome of the movie in advance. I want to sit and just watch that movie all unfold, and that's the fun of it. So you see, the funny thing is, is that. Trying to predict what's going to happen next, you know, it kind of takes away from the whole fun part. What what we can control, as I mentioned with the whole asymmetry concept, is we can control our risk in advance. That's the part we can control, and that's what we need to focus on, and let everything just let everything else just kind of flow out as it does. jump to the next uh, topic and I want to talk a little bit about you know what is required from an organizational point of view in order to do what you do and but I want to focus it on a slightly different angle because uh, we know from the sort of and I call it in lack of a better word so that the pure alternative investment space that they're obviously competing with each other but they're not competing against the major you know banks uh, around the world when I think about your your universe and the fact that you uh, predominantly invest in uh, securities and the fact that you manage a large portion of uh, the wealth of these individuals, I'm thinking that you actually are competing with these big uh, banks and so on and so forth. So how do you how do you structure an organization? Um, you know, and I know it's a small team, but how do you how do you structure that in order to be able to compete? Well, first of all, our our company. Um, so, so Shell Capital Management, you know, is registered as an investment advisor. So that that's very that is a fiduciary. Where where the banks that you're talking about are not okay. The the brokerage firms are not fiduciaries. First of all, they don't have a fiduciary standard of care. Whereas a you know an investment management firm does have a fiduciary standard of care, and that means that we have we are we need to make every decision that we make has to be in the best interest of our clients. And that's talking about all the way down to something we spent several months on recently, which is negotiating the trading cost. Mm-hmm. So you know. We're uh, now we do a rat fee program where we act, I actually pay the trading cost. Mm-hmm. So we 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 charge one management fee, and uh, and it actually includes the trading cost. And so we you know uh, so we we you know we are only making shell capital management 
manages people's individual accounts that are titled in, in their own names at a third-party custodian or third-party bank. And, and, and so they control the account, and they just give us, through a, like a power of attorney, through an investment management agreement, uh, the ability to buy and sell in their account. And then we're able to use high-end custodians with high technology that allow us to allocate the same exact trade across all these accounts through all these different places. And so, so all I'm actually doing for a living is I buy and sell things in those accounts. So I buy, sell in size. Let's say, you know, so I enter, exit in size, and that's all I'm doing in the accounts. And they get so everybody gets the exact same trade at the exact same time at and pretty much at the same price. Now, the way we compete with them is because um, you know, first of all, we're a fiduciary and we're doing it. They're they're hiring me to be a portfolio manager. Whereas if you go down to the brokerage house. You're your own portfolio manager. Ultimately, your broker is not your portfolio manager. You know, your uh, your broker is really a broker that sells you things and maybe gives you advice and tells you to you know about maybe mutual funds or something like that. But but they're not actually a portfolio manager where I am. And so it's 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 actually very easy to compete with that because we're we're structured in a much better way. I, I mean, there's no question about it. You can just Google registered investment advisory fiduciary standard of care. It'd be one of the most basic concepts. The second thing is we only make buy and sell decisions and portfolio management decisions. We don't have access to the money in any way. We don't nobody we don't cut checks. Nobody mails us checks. The checks go directly to all these other custodians and these other brokerage houses. And so and, and we can manage accounts at, like I said earlier, at Folio Institutional, uh, Interactive Brokers, Trust Company America, uh, through Placemark Investments, we access Schwab, uh, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, Pershing. So there's all these different places that we can do it. And uh, so it's it's really uh, it's just a, it's a much higher level of, of of getting it done if you want to manage the account. Uh, people who are at the I think that are at the banks or the brokerage houses are people who are really you know they're wanting to kind of make their own decisions and maybe get a little bit of advice from from a salesperson you know. But at the end of the day, and, and I know those those banks you know they may offer their own programs too. I you know you can compare them to mine and, and others, and you know you see that. You know, at the, you know, it's about you're, you're talking about the business structure itself. You see, at the end of the day, like I said, it all comes back to we are completely and utterly focused on this one thing that we do, and it's all that we do. You know, we we don't actually even you know we don't talk to our investors a whole lot because there's not a whole lot to talk about unless they need money or want to add money to it, or or unless they just want to kind of catch up and you know see hey how you doing. You know, I mean, we don't. I'm not a broker, so I don't discuss the trades with them. I'm, I'm making trading decisions, and they're getting the the trades. Just and we're all getting them. My money's in there. You know, all of our my, you know our family's money's in there. The clients' money's are in there. So it's really not a. I guess you know if we are competing, I, I, we probably the majority of people that come that have come to us over the years. To to be honest with you, have been uh, high end high end business owners. Uh, who are, are very sophisticated people themselves who are probably doing it on their own more and maybe they had some help with a broker or maybe or maybe they're a physician. We have a lot of physicians and surgeons and radiologists and things like that too and anesthesiologists um, where they've had bad experiences with you know trust companies or banks or brokers and they they can't you know they lost a lot of money in 2008 2009 maybe and they came to us because of that and uh, we, you know, my maximum drawdown was fourteen percent in the managed account program, and it lasted about six months before we recovered. Uh, so, it, uh, you know, I, I don't think that uh, as far as competing wise, uh, 
you know, I don't really feel like we really compete with them because I don't think they can really compete with what I'm doing. No, and I didn't mean strategy as such. And in terms of just sort of general, um, I mean, do you have to rely a lot on on outsourcing in order to cover all the areas that you need to cover or, or, uh, and, and, and do you have plans as you grow to, to also build a bigger team on your side? Yes. uh, Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. We we actually, you're, you're right. We do. We outsource, um, very good point. We, yeah, we outsource a, a, a lot of things. Okay. So, so like when it comes to the managed account program, you got to realize that we have a whole team at these, at all these, these different custodians and banks and, and brokers that we mentioned, you know, there, there's a team in all those places that do all the back office stuff for us. Sure. You know, all I do is go into the, I go in and enter a buy and sell, you know, I, we don't get into, so there's other teams that do all that. Uh, kind of like, like in the fund, for example, in, the, in a pooled fund, you have a third-party administrator that does all the administration and handles the, the cash money in and out. You have a, a bank account that accepts the wires in and out. You have a brokerage account that does all that where we do all the trades inside the brokerage account. And there's all kinds of controls that keep any, anybody from being able to get to the money. Uh, well, in the same way, in a managed account program, it's probably even easier because we're just buying and selling in, in these people's on account. And so, yes, we do have people. Uh, there, there are two other people that are involved in the organization. One of them is somebody uh, who uh, who was the first employee I ever had ten years ago, who worked for me for about three years while he was getting a, a degree in finance at the University of Tennessee. And then uh, I, I wanted to, I kind of, he was kind of helping me do lots of things. One of them was co- to find investors. I wanted to focus on what we, we got just enough investors that I wanted to focus on that for a number of years. And then more recently, we've, we've, we're, we're launching some new things where in the last uh, couple of years, we're actually now made it available to other advisory firms. So registered investment advisors that are, that are financial planner type advisors and, and, and wealth managers they will now use my investment program with their clients. And, and so we have, I've got two people that actually work with them directly. And then occasionally I'll talk to them too, if necessary. But, but I have two people that are working on that on a national level. So we're and one of them, uh, the guy that I just rehired that worked for me years ago. Um, he's by the way, he spent, uh, about over six years flying helicopters in the army and, 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 and then, uh, five years, uh, as a, uh, a senior auditor, he's a CPA. And so he has the level of precision that I need to work with me because, you know, we do things very precise and I have my way of doing things and it's not, you know, it's not a normal way of doing things. And so it, we were, we, we demand a certain level of precision. And this person has it. He is going to head up, uh, He's working with the advisors around the country, and that's the that's the element that we're going to really grow because uh, that's where I think our real growth is. Is yeah, we're you know we're still you know open to maybe working with some some business owners and things like that maybe directly that Christy works with, but yet uh, but but Gary will be working with the advisors, and so yeah, it's all you know it's all outsourced. I mean, we sure. don't have to. We're not a we're not a bank or a financial institution, so we don't you know we're not we don't have custody of the money. So there's a lot of things we don't have to do. We're just ultimately buying and selling and then you know and then uh and then these all these other entities are actually doing everything else sure i want to jump to uh talk a little bit about your track record and uh what i mean by that is um when investors look at a at a track record we and usually if it's been you know around as long as you have for sure and 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 longer there is a lot of things that has gone on uh, during that time, and 
and the way the the trading systems were structured initially may not be the way it it is today so when people look at your track record you mentioned it's 10 year long how should they interpret it how how has it evolved from 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 a structural point of view in terms of the the the, the structure of the program over that 10 year period well uh, it's it's a well, it's 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 always been a flexible strategy so my so asymmetry is a global uh, so it's you know asymmetry is global it's tactical and it's all assets so it's global in scope in that so I've got so there's like you know so for example within the using ETFs as an example uh, you know I'm running a CTA type system but I'm actually applying it to ETFs and I, and that's just how I started doing it now um, the globalness means that we we will access uh, international markets. So I may have a position in Thailand or Brazil or Russia through an ETF, you know, so or China. You know, all these uh, there, there's over fifteen hundred ETFs. There's about two, uh, there's two to three hundred of those ETFs right now in my universe that's global that I consider to be tradable and efficient enough for me to to apply my systems and methods to. Mm-hmm. And 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 within that there's you know there's like 25 countries and there's US sectors and there's bonds and there's high yield and there's all kinds of uh, com- you know there's some commodities, there's currencies and it's a very very broad opportunity set. So it's always been a flexible strategy. Now my strategy while systematic in many ways and definitely uh you know, it's a part of a, a system. I have multiple systems. I have lots of different systems that I developed. And I ultimately, though, the human element is, is that I'm applying the systems and I ultimately decide which system to apply. And I ultimately decide, you know, how to operate it and I do the execution. So so for me, I, it is not a mechanical, um, you know, very automated, completely automated mechanical system. For me, I'm actually got lots of different systems, and I am actually, you know, playing the shell game—no pun intended—in uh, determining how I'm going to do it. And so, I the reason I do it that way is because I, I guess I'm unique in that. In the '90s, I was a technician. You know, I was, I was using charts, and, and, and you know, I was defining you know direction of a trend using a chart. And then later on, I started using algorithms and developing an equation. An algorithm is a is a big, uh, you know, scary sounding word to people, but an algorithm is just a series of steps and processes. So it's this it's a decision tree. And I remember when I first got on this gigantic dry erase board in my office in Knoxville, and I started drawing out with a black marker this 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 big decision tree. If this happens, then here's what I'm going to do. If that happens, then I'm going to do this. But if this happens, I'll do that. And that's how it all started. It became a, it's a decision tree. We programmed it into a program, and we developed all kinds of systems to deal with it. And where the, for me, where the programs that I've developed come into play is that they, they do the routine daily tasks that we can't quite get people to do accurately at my level. You see, when I get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and walk into my office and I hit that button, that computer system is always going to perfectly tell me exactly what I want it to know, and they don't make mistakes. The calculator doesn't add 1 plus 1 and give you 3. It's going to always give you 2 because it's a very, very simple question that you're asking the computer to give you. And so computer programs don't actually make mistakes unless you tell them to make, unless you just, you know, develop it wrong. And so you you get the precision of a computer program that will rank the world, tell you what's going up and what's going down based on my definition, 
and it'll tell me how much risk I have in each position based on if I'm in it at 50 and I'm going to get out at five or going to get out at 45, then I've got $5 at risk. And how much is that $5 as a percentage of my equity? You see, that, that's monitored all the time. And so it's man plus machine. For me, it's man plus machine. It's the combination of those things. And, and I use, I've, I have developed some skills, and I know other people like to talk about being mechanical and systematic, and I am, but I have developed skills of understanding, uh, one, a big one for me, for example, like right now, there's a lot of intermarket issues going on. I understand how markets interact with each other, okay? And I, and I give you an example of right now. I mean, who would have thought that, that, uh, we're in a global deflation environment, okay? Prices of things are going down. Prices of stuff are going down. I'm talking about commodities and stuff, gold, uh, the commodities indexes and all that. Sure. This, we're in a global deflationary environment. And 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 TLT, the long-term treasury ETF, is going to the moon. It's it, it just recently, it's hitting maybe a, maybe a peak here. I don't know. But, but it's a, been a very strong trend up. So its interest rate is down, you know, to like two percent. So interest rates are going down, bond prices are going up on treasuries, and and that's all interconnected to global deflation. See, I understand that, and there's not, I think that you know, there's not a whole lot of people that I know, and I know I, I communicate fairly regularly with about a hundred people that do this stuff, and there's not a whole lot of people that truly understand what's going on and why gold is down, why the dollar's going up, and why, and it's it's global deflation. And the price of things are going down and interest rates are, you know, that's driving. And, and then the second thing I think that's driving the long-term treasury up would be the fact that uh, the world, there's a lot of world markets that are actually falling recently. And that money tends to rotate into bonds and that drives the price of the bond up. Those kind of things to me are important. Now, do I, do I have to know that to do well? No, I don't. But, but I can tell you that overall, uh, part of my, the, the consistency of my return stream and, and the uniqueness of my return stream has been because I am, I, am, I am following trends primarily, but I also identify at times when those trends do get to an extreme, and I do, to, I do some things there. Now, particularly for – I'll give you a good example. Um, I normally don't talk about in my fund a lot, but I'll tell you something I do in my fund that's different than I do in a managed account. So in a fund, if I've got a trend that's going to the moon, like say TLT, the treasury, I may go sell call options against that. I may start to slightly hedge that position. So I'm going to let it keep going up for I'm going to let it allow it to keep running, but I may I may see, you know what, this this trend is is reached an extreme point based on my definition. And I'm going to go and I'm going to use options to maybe hedge that position. And, and, and because rather than sell it, I'm going to let it go, but I'm going to hedge it in some way. And I may use a vertical spread or some real complicated option strategy to do that. By the way, options are very, very asymmetrical. You know, the payoffs are very asymmetrical if done correctly. They're not risky unless you don't know how to use them, which most people don't. But, but so the, I guess at the end of the day, you know, that's uh, – there, there's there's a lot to it. I mean, you know, for me, I believe, and for me, it's been man versus machine. And over the last ten years, I can tell you that when you look at my return history, which will be on uh, our website, Asymmetry Managed Accounts. Um, when you look at my return history, uh, in the first several years, uh, we had we you know if, like if I compared it to the stock market, for example, which is is a bad comparison because we're not just trading the stock market, but we the, the the performance was really really strong and and there's a reason for that it's because 
I had a lot of international exposure and I had a lot of commodity exposure to commodity indexes and, and particularly energy. Energy was rocking out from 2005 through 2007. Energy sure. was really going to the moon. And, and most of the, again, understanding what drives trends, the tr return drivers, um, the, the, the driver of the returns at that time was the fact that you had commodities in certain in certain in those countries like you know Latin America that are commodity driven they were really rocking and rolling so we had a lot of exposure to that and energy and then and then you had the you know and, and actually if you look real close if you if we compared it to the stock market uh, asymmetry global tactical kept go, actually going up into 2008 because then all of a sudden uh, I started actually getting short a little bit uh, using ETF, just inverse ETFs. We don't we don't use margin and we don't short anything in a managed accounts. Uh, it's always just long exposure, but we'll gain some short positions through inverse ETFs. So it's just a nice, clean, easy strategy to do. We we do this in profit sharing accounts and all kinds of different accounts because we can. You see, because we're not shorting, we're not using margin or nothing like that. No leverage, although we may use a leveraged ETF occasionally if we want to to gain more exposure with less capital. Sure. But, but, but going into 2008, if you look real close, uh, the portfolio kept going up. In fact, I think over there from, from that peak in the stock market of October, 2007, up until October, 2008, I think it gained around almost 20% when the S and P 500 dropped 20%. And there was a reason for that. And that's because there are certain countries were still going up. Energy was still going up. Uh, we probably got into you know maybe some bonds that were going up in price, uh, and two two really unique things at that time that we don't do too often was that I was uh, I was short financials and REITs real estate through uh, through inverse ETFs. I'll never forget. I normally don't get much uh, questions from our investors because they they know they see what we do, they understand what we do, so they don't ask many questions. But I do remember one investor back then saying, "Mike, you know who who shorts REITs?" He said, "That's a dividend paying and all this." And I said, "Well, I do." You know, he said, "Well, why?" Well, I said, "Because I said because REITs are going down more than anything else in the world's going up. Yeah. Real estate investment trusts in early two thousand eight and financials." You know, banks and things—they were going down at a higher, you know, a better trend. Their their velocity was—they were going down more than anything else in the world was going up. So we ended up, with, so we ended up actually going inverse using those because because the managed account is mostly a long strategy. It's primarily long things. It's not, you know, but but it will go short things. And we do use like SH, the short ETF, uh, S and P five hundred ETF that that you know tr you know gets the short side. We will do that at times too, but it's just not a huge exposure to it because I just don't need it. And that strategy, I want to I want I want to I want a consistent return stream. And so overall, it's a very flexible strategy. It's not really changed a lot. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm kind of been doing the same thing over the entire period of time, but the conditions have changed. So that is probably, there's periods of time where we've had more bonds. There's periods where we've had more international stocks. There's periods where we've been, had more United States stocks. There's periods where we had currencies. You know, you don't hear much about currencies anymore, but you forget that, you know, the euro and all those currencies were doing really well in the early, you know, say 10 years. Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.